Hey, good morning. Welcome to Perspectives from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. You're always welcome to join the conversation at 850-414-1234 or zip us an email, perspectives at wfsu.org. Well, some artists, believe it or not, tend toward violence. But their art can help them to control or maybe redirect that destructive energy. And then you got some other artists who might find that the creative process helps them gain power over or make sense of the violent environment they find themselves in. And then there are those artists for whom their work is a terrifying mirror of their psychopathic personalities. And that mirror can reinforce and perpetuate their worst impulses, art as a weapon, if you will. Well, there is a surprising link between creation and destruction, and that was the topic of Dr. Dave Gussick's new book entitled The Frenzied Dance of Art and Violence. Now, if you don't know this guy, he is widely celebrated as a preeminent expert in the field of art therapy applied to incarcerated violent criminals, and he is also a professor in the Florida State University graduate art therapy program and recently appeared right here on Perspectives as part of the discussion of the Two Regimes art exhibit a little while back. And that, if you recall, featured works inspired by the twin horrors of the Nazi and Soviet Russian mass exterminations. And his work also references some of the art that came from that time and place as well. And he joins us today. Dr. Dave, it's good to see you again. It, thank you for having me here. I have to say it's it's been years I've been trying to gain perspective, so I think I'm just happy that I can actually perhaps get that today. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and you were a regular on this program, too, because, again, of the incredible amount of insight that you provide to what is, I think for a lot of folks, kind of a, I hadn't even thought of it that way. You see a beautiful work of art, and you think, well, that kind of reflects, it must reflect the creator of that work. Well, I... Yeah, I mean, I think my entire career, I've been, I've been an art therapist for 30 years. I've been in, in and out of wor working in prisons, working with, I, I specialize in working with violent and aggressive people, of course, prison inmates, juvenile justice, uh, graduate students. And so there's, sorry about that, that was probably funnier in my head. <laughs> but but I, I, you know, there's always been, especially for the art therapist who can see or, or recognize how the art itself becomes either a container or a way to redirect or mitigate or reflect back some of uh, the artist's or creator's aggressive and, and violent tendencies that the art itself may be used to help sublimate some of these, uh, these tendencies and impulses. And so all of my work has been focused on how does art help redirect and channel that. Um, this book actually followed, um, the discussion on this book followed on the heels of one that came out about 10 years ago called Art on Trial, Art Therapy uh, and Death Row uh, and Capital Murder Cases in which I provided expert witness testimony in a uh, death row murder trial in the Midwest. And what happened during that, that book was that a lot of these art pieces, some of them were good, right? But some of them were quite banal. Some of them were quite primitive. Some of them were quite simplistic. Um, 
but and people wouldn't give it a second thought until they found out that this person murdered someone. And then all of a sudden, they're fascinated by this work. They become, uh, like uh, we were just talking earlier, they become virtual rubberneckers. They're fascinated by this, and they want to look into this work. Well, I, in examining this work, I'm using the formal elements that emerged from these pieces. You see a pattern of, of what drove him to these, these dynamics. And, and what happened was during the making of that book, I was talking to my editor, and... And she was taught, she was fascinated when she found out that many violent and aggressive people create art. As a matter of fact, many artists that we know, we don't, we may not know that they hide a, a historic or a, a biographical uh, history of violence and aggression. And I had just come off the heels of doing a couple of lectures in Las Vegas on the work of John Wayne Gacy, uh, the serial killer out of Chicago, and he had done a great deal of art pieces. Uh, while he was in prison, and she was fascinated by this, and she said, uh, "How many? How prevalent is this?" I said, "Well, there are many serial killers, many multiple murderers, have made art. You know, I had been exposed to Manson's work when I worked in the prisons in in California, and she said, "Wow, th this is amazing. Maybe there's a book in this. Maybe you could do a book about the art of the serial killers." And I said, N "No." <laughs> I'm like, "No. I, I mean, I think." There's a certain titillation that we get out of looking at these pieces, but that elevates them to a different level that I don't want to be responsible for. And we as a, as a culture, as a society, we're fascinated by murderabilia, and, and that's not my place. I don't want to contribute to that. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, but perhaps that could be a piece of a much larger exploration of what I have found to be a natural relationship, an inner relationship between art and violence. And so I went into this book with this notion of that art can be fed uh, by aggressive and violent tendencies and impulses, or the creative energy can be fed by that. And at the same time, creative expression can help mitigate it and turn it aside. And for a while there, that actual you know, dance worked until it didn't. And that, you know, that became part of the process of the book. That's why the book took me seven years, is that it really challenged a lot of my perspectives on exactly what is this dynamic, this interrelationship. And you said it in the introduction, when I started discovering that art could be used as a tool as well, as a weapon, that's when I started getting a little thrown off. Well, there's some connective tissue here in, in what you just said, Dave, when it comes to the serial killers, the mass murderers, people whose, you know, inner psyche we can't even imagine because of what that drove them to do in the real world. You know, some really horrible things, whether it is uh, John Gacy. And you remember the guy who dressed up as the clown? You know, he was, a, uh, as he said, in the... Uh, uh, yeah, pillar of society in Chicago and all, but, you know, he was burying people in the crawl space under his house. Or Charles Manson, we all know about that individual. Or perhaps the worst serial killer in modern history, Adolf Hitler, mm -hmm. all created art which would not have gotten a second glance even from your hometown art gallery, if just Joe Schmo or, or, or Sally Smith had shown up with this, they would look on it and go, this is pretty bad stuff. Mm -hmm. And that lack of 
humanity, of emotion, of the ability to connect with real people seems to be a common thread through a lot of these you know, horrible, horrible people. Yeah, absolutely. You're hitting on so many wonderful things that there's just so much that that emerged from this process. There's wonderful art pieces, um, and there's a lot of art. There's about 85 images in this book, and there's only about 12 or 15 pieces that were done by the serial killers. There are many pieces that were done by violent and aggressive artists that we know of, right? We, we have Caravaggio, who, you know, when people think of violent artists, we, we know of him and how he was actually uh, so, murdered someone. And Salvador Dali, who in his own autobiography would, would champion his own um, violent impulses. Um, Jackson Pollock, whose frenzy was always out there on the art piece. But those art pieces would become a container or a way to sublimate or, or channel or contain those, those aggressive and violent tendencies. And there is a depth to those pieces. I mean, let's, let's face it, those are wonderful art pieces. And it, it satisfied and satiated in some way some of that tendency, the, those grandiosities, those forms of expression. When you have these art pieces done by these, um, the serial killers, uh, many of them are banal, some of them are quite uh, boring, and some of them are quite atrocious and and and, and um, you know profound, profane, right? Um, and then when examining these pieces, what what I came to understand, and I believe it's accurate, and and I spend a lot of time examining this in the in the middle, is that in those cases. Um, they began creating these art pieces when they were imprisoned, when they no longer had power over others, when they no longer had a way to, to threaten or, or, or take, take away from someone else. So instead, their art became a reflection of this, and it continued their sense of grandiosity and narcissism that, um, and, and in many ways continued to attack the viewer in a very uh, metaphoric and probably a very profound way. They knew that their work was being absorbed and, and being reflected on, and it kept them um, powerful. It kept them out there. I mean, John Wayne Gacy enjoyed using that work to connect with others because he thought he was being celebrated for that. You know, The only one of all of them who I think was probably genuinely creative, and it still didn't help was Manson, who actually created a lot of art and, and his own music and his own art before um, the murderous spree that he went through with the family. That, uh, and it was more of a spree than anything else. Um, but he continued to do a lot of art even after he was imprisoned. And I don't think, unlike Gacy or even Schaefer or, uh, or um, Rawlings, who were some of the serial killers in here, or Ng, um, he, he didn't necessarily use that art as a way to attack the viewer. He really genuinely thought that he was, uh, his art was worth producing, and it did it for his own creative expression. It was a very unusual sense. Yeah, it, you mentioned Danny Rawlings, of course. You know the uh, uh, the Gainesville Ripper, yeah. who we recall very vividly here in Florida uh, of what he did with the, uh, the students down there uh, around the University of Florida. So there's a lot of, uh, of Florida connections in this book, too, few, I noticed. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them went on trial in Florida, even after they had perpetrated horrific cl uh, crimes in other parts of the country. So we are going to continue our discussion. Dr. Dave Gussick and his new book, The Frenzy Dance of Art and Violence, 
and the strange connections therein. 850-414-1234, our number here for Perspectives, if you'd like to join in, and we'll be right back in a moment. Perspectives, which is always available online at WFSU.org. We archive each and every one of the programs in its entirety, and it's typically up within a day or so of when it appears on the radio, so you can go back and revisit as often as you would like. Dr. Dave Gusick here with us from the, the Art Therapy Group at Florida State University, and um, the uh, book Frenzied Dance of Art and Violence, which is out right now. Your first section here, which um, you call Angelic Demons, Dave, and I call Nasty Artists Pretty Art. Uh, <laughs> we have already mentioned some of the uh, main characters in that chapter there of uh, uh, Caravaggio and Cellini and Dali and Modigliani and Jackson Pollock and Richard Dad and, and those guys. Interesting folks all because talk about flawed characters. Each one, these were not nice people. <laughs> they really weren't. Well, I mean, I'm sure they had moments where they were enjoyable around the dinner table, right? But I think, uh, you know, what it was an unusual chapter to write um, because. And I, and I talk about the process where I found some of these artists. I mean, I, I was shocked as much as anyone that I included Medigliani in here. And to a certain extent, I did my best to stay away from Pollock because I thought that would be cliche. And yet it turns out I couldn't get away from him. Um, and, and throughout the book, there are a lot of artists in this book. And some of them I knew that I wanted to explore. And some of them came to me by colleagues and friends and, and at conferences and around the dinner table of uh, people suggesting, hey, have you considered this artist or have you taken a look at this artist? And my danger was I didn't want to turn this into an encyclopedia about a book about violent artists. So instead, I, I, I worked really hard in channeling it and focusing it and using artists that I thought were emblematic of certain types of expressions and experiences. And so that first chapter, I would I would argue is divided in, in half. The top part is about artists whose aggression and violence grew out of their own narcissistic tendencies and grandiosity. That would be Caravaggio and Cellini and, and Dali. And the second half are the artists that created out of impulsive actions. I mean, I mean, their aggression and violence came out of impulsive actions. And these would be people who, parallel to those acts of impulsivity, because of their anxiety and insecurities and whatnot, would often turn to drugs or or would uh, uh, turn to alcohol, like Medigliani and, and Pollock, and even Richard Dad, who was an amazing Victorian artist, but had murdered his father during a severe uh, break, um, had a severe mental illness, and the art allowed him the opportunity to create a sense of containment. And so... So when I, I was surprised by Medigliani, and the more I read about him, the more I realized that those paintings, which I would describe as mask-like, 
and and hiding what's behind the interior. He himself was quite impulsive and quite uh, aggressive and violent. Um, when his his wife would would try to to find him after a certain binge, he would oftentimes attack her, and he would attack his colleagues and friends, getting caught up in these these verbal jousts, which would sometimes come to blows. Uh, Jackson Pollock um, was quite volatile, right? And he did say his paintings, while they may appear chaotic, he, he would argue because it's not chaos, damn it. And he said, this controls it, and this contains it, and this is my energy, and this is this, this rhythmic um, dripping, so to speak, you know, for lack of a better term, um, actually maintains a semblance of control and allows me to gain some sense of, of you know, again, control. Um, it wasn't until later that it just it just erupts, and you know, and where there is not the, the paintings do start to reflect the inner turmoil so much more. Um, Caravaggio is is you know the father of Tiroscuro, which is light and shadow. And what a great metaphor that without light, you know, there could be no shadow, and without shadow, there could be no light. And there's a reason he starts that chapter, you know, and he was quite grandiose and narcissistic and the reason he murders Tomasino is because Tomasino confronts him for sleeping with his wife and so you know Caravaggio is like you know I will have a duel with you and because I'm in the right for sleeping with your wife and you know that's his own sense of superiority and he ends up killing him you know during the duel and so he's he's of course um, exiled and, and, and imprisoned um, and then of course dies at a young age when he's trying to catch up with his paintings on the ship. You know, that was his, his legacy, and that's, that's what he, you know. And, and so um, there's a, our history is rife with, with violent and aggressive people, and if we were to start scratching beneath the surface of many of the artists, we'll see this volatility uh, in, many, in many people. I do know that I had a conversation once with a, a colleague who shared the book with her mother, who got very indignant because she loved Medigliani and how dare I put Medigliani in this chapter. And to me, that was the best compliment. It was like, because, you know, I, I don't mean to take away anyone's heroes, but we're humanizing people who are otherwise larger than life because of the way their work appears and the way we champion them. It's like, no, they're... They're pretty much human. Yeah, yeah, but but as you said, mask-like at least was some of the art. If you did not know the backstory, mm-hmm. and you saw uh, Caravaggio's Chiaroscuro, and you saw the drippings of Jackson Pollock and all this, could you tell as a trained and professional art therapist person? Oh, we've got some real problems here. Even though this is pretty good, good stuff that's highly creative and innovative, and it's gorgeous but could you tell probably not i mean i think that there is a there is a a um myth that art therapists can look at a painting and immediately see the turbulence underneath it and see the problems now we have it easy because we know all art pieces come out of that turbulence and so we're going to look for that but without actually speaking to the artist or knowing about their background knowing their history putting them in context putting them in their societal group um do we start to really scratch the surface of who that person may be? So so maybe it's a little disingenuous for me to say, well, these paintings are mask-like and therefore it's masking his... Obviously, that's not accurate. But perhaps I may ask different questions as an art therapist than a viewer at a, at a museum. But I would also argue 
that there are v- many viewers that may get a visceral sense from these pieces and not know where that's coming from, that they get that sense of imbalance, that disharmony, that challenge, that maybe they don't know exactly why that painting is, is singing to them the way it is. And maybe it's connecting with their own sense of disharmony, if I, if you will. 850-414-1234, talking to Dr. Dave Gussick here about his new book, The Frenzied Dance of Art and Violence. And Jack is going to join the conversation here on line one. Hey, Jack, thanks for calling. Welcome to Perspectives. Thank you, Tom. I admire Dr. Gussick. I want to take us in a slightly different direction, which is another kind of art, which is literary art, Mm -hmm. uh, stories. Um, when I was a young teacher in the Bronx back in the early 1970s, uh, my students, mostly young teenagers, were fascinated by um, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, specifically the story of the Telltale Heart, in which you know the the uh, protagonist commits a murder and then the heart comes to life under the floorboards when he's being interviewed as a possible suspect. And I always uh, was uh, fascinated. Uh, A lot of these young people lived uh, in violent areas, uh, both uh, street violence as well as home violence. And their fascination turned into be a very positive learning lesson because of conscience. So my question for Dr. Gusuk is, could this be a route towards uh, a therapeutic uh, conscience raising to expose young people to literature which in fact reveals the fact that there's such a thing as conscience and maybe as a preventative to further problems. I think that there's no question of that. I think absolutely. Uh, Not only literature, but music and dance and the visual arts to recognize that the art provided a a tone or a redirection or a, a reinvention of the violence that the person may be experiencing. Um, Tom and I were talking earlier about one of the characters in the book. As an art therapist, I worked for many years with violent and aggressive people in the inner cities. When I was in L.A., I worked with a gang member whose art expression was solely exhibited through graffiti on the walls using his own gang imagery. And but by you, rather than you know turning away that or 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 um, indicating that what he was doing was wrong, instead. When working with him, I, I championed this form of expression, said, how can we redirect this expression to make it more about who you are rather than your gang? And so it did raise it to a conscious level. It was accepting this expression from him, which in turn, you know, accepts him. And I think by looking at some of the work that's out there of other artists that raises this level of consciousness and normalizes some of the sense of aggression and violence that they feel about their surroundings. It gives them a sense of belonging, gives them a sense of place. It, it re-identifies them as, as, as human when we have a tendency to dehumanize and objectify those that are violent and aggressive. So, uh, and, and by the way, you're speaking to a fellow Bronxite. I, I, I lived in the Bronx. I, grew, I started in the Bronx, I should say. And so I love hearing the stories about those who work and using the, the, the literature and the art that, that applies to the students rather than us putting on them the work that we think they should be reading, instead using the work that will probably sing to them. So that, that's wonderful, Jack. Thank you for asking that. And I hope that answered it. You allowed me to go off on a tangent I probably should not have gone on. Um, if I may, just one more sentence. <laughs> I'll never forget a student who came up to me and said, uh, Mr. Levine, 
the telltale heart beats in Spanish, not just in English. And it, wow. it spoke to the universality of the idea of conscience. Thank you. Well, I, and I just realized that I'm speaking to Jack Levine. Jack, it's great <laughs> to hear your voice. I, 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 I get your emails all the time, and I, I remain so connected with you, and I think your work is just amazing. So well, um, this, this thank you for coming on board. This form of perspective brings a lot of friends together. Thank you, Tom. Thank uh, you. Thank, thank you, thank Jack. You. It's always a delight to hear from you, and we'll chat more here in the not-too-distant future. But, you know, Jack brings up a really good point, Dave, and that is... You know, the art as a way to integrate a personality, to give positive options to a person, to make them better, to get them outside of their predetermined environment and all that stuff you were just talking about. So if, let's say, Charles Manson had just done more artwork, maybe he would not have been such a psychopathic killer. <laughs> That's like saying if Hitler actually got that gallery show that he so badly wanted, he never would have done what he did. Um, I, th- I do think that's overly simplistic. I think that there are some people who, you know, aren't going to change. Um, I, I think if you take a look at, at, for example, Hitler's work, which is so, again, so un- inhuman. I mean, he did thousands of little architectural paintings, but there's nothing human in those. There's no people in there. He's technically adroit, but, and I say that because I love using the word adroit, but I think that um, there's nothing really connecting to the viewer for that. So even if, I, I still think that that was who he was. I mean, we're talking about a severe personality disorder that may very well be difficult to redirect. Um, and so when you take a look at Manson, if his music was discovered and, and, and the Beach Boys continued to do more of his songs, would he have gone in the direction that he went in? I think it's dangerous for us to go down that road and to consider that. Um, I think he had already been, because of his his social background, his familial background or lack thereof, his the way society had already viewed him, it would have been extremely difficult for us to to relabel him and develop a new path. Is it possible? I have to think that it is, otherwise I wouldn't be an art therapist. But I think it is a little simple to say that if we had actually recognized that art piece, that he wouldn't have gone on and did what he did. 850-414-1234 or zip us an email, perspectives at wfsu.org as we continue our conversation with Dr. Dave Gussick. On the flip side of that, we have, uh, we were just talking about folks whose inner demons, conflict, turmoil, whatever, informed their artistic expression. But you can also go from external to internal. And in the next chapter, uh, which is art out of war, or as I termed it, creativity out of chaos, you have situations that impinge on people that have sparked a an expression, a creativity. They have to let other people know what this situation they find themselves in is doing not only to them, but humanity as a whole. Talk about that chapter. Oh, yeah, that was a, a uh, I really enjoyed that chapter. Um, and it starts with Goya, Francesco Goya, who did these uh, original, I mean, he was nothing more than a court painter that did these, did these really boring paintings until he was exposed to the Napoleonic Wars. And he started doing these not just suddenly, but he started evolving into doing these etchings of the disasters of war, and he would do the 3rd of May, and he did these paintings that really captured uh, the horror of the war that he witnessed. It was his way to make sense of it and to communicate and be evidentiary. You know, we, we start with Goya here. 
But this notion, Susan Sontag reminds us that this goes back to Leonardo da Vinci, who actually said um, it's the artist's responsibility to paint war as it really is so that we don't sensationalize it and romanticize what war is, but we see the true horror of it. And, and you know, Goya is a great uh, epitomizes that. Max Beckman who was, was um, originally uh, objectivism and did these objectified images, is exposed to the horrors of World War I as a paramedic when he volunteered out of a sense of duty and enthusiasm and then saw the horror of what he witnessed and his paintings took on a dark tone and a real expressive tone and you culminating in this, uh, several of the paintings that I include in this book. And by the way, thank you to all the galleries and the photographers that allowed me to use their paintings, uh, their images throughout the book. But his painting, The Night, really en embodies the horror of what he experienced during war. Now, they're witnesses, right? But in this book are those that were the direct victims, right? So we have Van Nath from Cambodia, who's imprisoned by the Khmer Rouge, who it wasn't until he was really, he was kept alive because he could create these art pieces and, and could paint a likeness of Paul Pot better than anyone else. And so he was kept alive during those years. But once he was released, he started uh, churning out these paintings of what was really going on inside. And it was his way to regain a sense of power during a time of helplessness and powerlessness. And you've got Felix Nussbaum, who during World War II, as a Jewish artist and labeled a degenerate artist, uh, continues, he's driven to continue painting in hiding uh, and, and continue to produce these images that were just, you know, if and when captured, would be immediately deported and murdered, which, by the way, that's what happened. And he made it a point. He, he knew he was about to get caught, and he made it a point to give his paintings to the, a, a friend of his who was a dentist and said, I, I will not make this. I will not make it out of this. I will likely not make it out of this, but please make sure the world sees my paintings. You know, that was important to him, right? And so I think it's our responsibility as artists to not only uh, re-channel and redirect our own sense of aggression and violence and use that creative energy and the interconnection, but to draw from what's going on around us. Um, I think we're creating better messages and, and better ways to connect with people using art in times of turmoil. And the emotional content of so many of those color plates and black and white renderings that are in your book from that particular chapter are just so incredibly powerful, Dave. And I'm thinking again of the, uh, the artists of the Holocaust. We're back to the two regimes exhibit that we were talking about just several weeks ago in this very room. But the ability to create art just like with... Um, what happened? Oh, well, we're coming up on a break. Okay. And we're going to take a quick time out and then we will continue our conversation here with Dr. Dave Gusick on Perspectives, talking about his book, The Frenzied Dance of Art and Violence, and we'll return.
We're back on Perspectives. Dr. Dave Gussick here in his new book. And uh, before we continue, I will just mention that this was a fun read. It is not an academic textbook in the accepted sense of that term. And we all know that. We've been out of school for quite a while. We can recall some that were so painfully, mind-numbingly boring. I've written those two. Yes, yes. right. (laughs) And we we have all read them. But this thing moves along. It took me, even though I only had maybe, oh, I don't know, less than half an hour a day to really devote to, to reading it, it in total, took me less than two weeks to go through right. this, and because it just whips right along, and one story logically follows the other, and you're always making these these fun connections in here, even though it is kind of heavy duty yeah. stuff that we're talking about here, Dave. Yeah, I, you know, it's people think I'm kidding when I say it's my final book. Um, it's my sixth and final piece. It took me from from ideation to finalization took me about seven or eight years. And part of it was because it was so heavy, particularly, again, revisiting the Holocaust images. That's been part of my passion for many, many years. But to, first of all, juxtapose it against Hitler's work like I did in that chapter. And then to to engage in the serial killer chapters where I was, I, to do this any justice, I had to dig deep in the literature and read the accounts and read the histories and speak to people who knew John Wayne Gacy and speak to people who knew Charles Manson and get first, you know, secondhand accounts, so to speak. And, you know, it was it was overwhelming. Um, the entire topic was overwhelming. It was exhausting. Um, I, there were times that certain sections I would I would have nightmares. I mean, and and, these, and I had seen them. I had met them firsthand. I met murderers, but there's ability to compartmentalize at work when you're doing this work as a therapist um, versus when you're writing about this and exposing yourself on a regular basis to all the, these horrors. Um, and, and thankfully, the last section, which is um, how art can facilitate change, and I did add a chapter on art therapy um, that, gives, that reinvigorated me and reconnected me to this is why we're doing this and this is why we have to do this type of work. But it is it's some of it is quite um, powerful, I think. Well, I hope. especially in the aspect of getting back to the Holocaust mm-hmm. artists again, the only thing that kept so many of them alive, like it did in Cambodia for Van Nath, mm-hmm. was that they could create art and act as like a propaganda shill for the Reich. Because look at our happy artists who are creating here in these camps. They are not being tortured and murdered. Why, they're just happy people. And yet they were subverting their captors at the same time by putting out images from the depths of depravity of these places so the world would know what was going on. Yeah, uh, you know... That was the first chapter that made me realize that this frenzy dance was a little bit more frenetic than I thought, that it was more than just two partners. Um, and that this, I started realizing that the Nazi regime used art as a weapon. They used it to foment propaganda, that Hitler himself saw this idealism and used the artist's identity, particularly for Jewish artists and, and those that they were targeted, as degenerate artists, and they, they spread this notion of propaganda through their art images. Because, again, a single image, you know, you take a look at the book The Poison Mushroom, which was chock full of images of what the horrible Jewish person looked like, um, and it gets the point across better than any words could. And so... Artists 
throughout the throughout Nazi uh, regime were all sent to the the Paradise Ghetto in Theresienstadt and Terezin. And you put all the artists in one place, and their job was to push, put out art creations, music, drama, and art imagery, and it was all supposed to celebrate the Third Reich. And yet these were artists that in the dark of night would paint images of what they actually saw. And you have Garon, you have... Uh, well, Garand wasn't in, in tradition shop, but you have Haas and Unger and uh, Fleischmann creating these images that are really capturing the horror. But I also want to point out that it's not necessarily all images of horrific uh, situations. It wasn't all the horror of what they saw as evidence. It was also a way to empower themselves. They were artists that would uh, create pa- uh, portraits of people because we're talking about a regime that's trying to objectify and take away identity and, and rip away any semblance of the person as they exist and yet and, and, and dehumanize them and then you have these artists who are creating portraits to remind us that these are real people. You hear the number six million and it's a statistic that's mind-blowing. We can't wrap our, uh, our mind around it but then you take a look at, at one of these portraits and you realize that's a real person. And then there were the artists that were that that were able to express themselves through humor, and they they made caricatures of their the people that held them, uh, uh, you know, held them uh, in constraints. And humor is a great way to wrest power away from someone else and gain a semblance of I I can. Um, limit the damage that you can do because I mean there's I don't think it's a coincidence that the first part of humor is the same part of the word humanity right there's there's a humanity to be able to laugh at ourselves and to laugh at someone else and and that's what they were able to do through these images so the art extends the gambit of reminding us of just who these these victims were and that they were real living powerful people who were who were daring and brave they were the most courageous people Speaking of disparities when it comes to power and position, you also have an interesting side-by-side contrast here between Bill Trailer, born into slavery, an African-American in the Deep South, also a phenomenal artist, and a white guy by the name of Norman Rockwell. <laughs> Talk about that contrast. Yeah, that, was, that was really potent. Rockwell, including Rockwell, surprised me, but I, I've learned about Bill Trailer from a colleague out, uh, out west, a, a librarian friend of mine, Kathleen O'Mara, who introduced me to the work of Bill Trailer, who's amazing. He, he's, um, he was a, a former slave who um, survived the um, Jim Crow era all the way through Reconstruction, all the way through to, to the Civil Rights era, um, who was always... Uh, poor and, and 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 struggling and often homeless, and he didn't start creating images. Um, what would would be termed outside of art? Now I have my own issues with the term outside of art, and I explored that in the book. That that if you're interested, by all means, have fun with that little debate. But Bill Trailer, who started creating these images when he was in his 60s and 70s, you know, homeless on the street and creating these paintings. Um, they were powerful symbolic imagery of if that was uncovered, what the meaning was underneath those pieces, he would be targeted by the white uh, supremacist um, culture, that that the, the dominant culture would continue to keep him um, in his place, so to speak. And these art pieces are completely 
expressive of this, this horrors that he went through. You then take a look at Rockwell, who, you know, he embodies, um, you know, placid, plastic, white suburban imagery from, from the Saturday Evening Post. And then when he's released from that contract and after World War II, he starts to realize that there's horrors going around us. And he creates these, these paintings, these elaborate, wonderful expressions, you know, the problems within, right, of, of, of Ruby Ridge um, as a six-year-old girl going to, to school. And then you, you see the horrors of um, Southern Justice, the Mississippi murders of the three... Um, 20-year-olds down in Mississippi, and he captures these images with such um, humanity and, and such imagery. I mean, yeah, but, and they're so powerful. And so to, to put Trailer and Rockwell in the same place that they're both expressing and reflecting what's going on around us, the horrors that, by the way, are still going around us, right? I mean, you know, there's a reason... I think the imagery of Black Lives Matter captures this in very much the same way. I think it's so powerful. Um, but I think w- the point I was also making was Trailer did these hundreds of pieces that really embodied in, in a hidden symbology of what was going on, what he was experiencing. And then you put that up against the literal imagery of Rockwell, which putting, you know, making us face as a culture what's actually going on around us. And, and we're able to acknowledge that. But I think the part that disturbs me the most is why do we listen to Rockwell more than we listen to Trailer? It's because our culture continues to pay homage to the the white privileged man, and if the message comes from him, then it's got much more potency and accuracy than Trailer, who gets buried in a pauper's grave. Now the irony's not lost on me. I don't know if you know this, Tom. I, I'm a white man, and, and you know, and and I, I couldn't tell, but that was- <laughs> but but and I recognize the irony there, right? Here I am exploring these dynamics, and that's when I have to sit back and listen and pay attention and recognize where the messages are coming from and how they come from within the artist. I, I do the same thing when I work in prisons. You know, I'm not going to go in there and tell them how they should be or what they should be doing or how they can change their life. I don't know their life, and I don't know. I'm an ambassador in their environment and in their culture. Same way through these art pieces, I, I have to witness them and recognize what they mean and how they mean from the artist. So while we as a society pay more respect and reflection to Rockwell more than Trailer, I, I think Trailers is a lot more genuine and really reflects the need and the drive and, and the compulsion to create with no training whatsoever. He had never been trained, and he was driven to, to create these images to get it out of him, to show really what was going on. Before you get into the final chapter and the application of art therapy, you devote an entire section of the book to Pablo Picasso's Guernica. How come? Oh, um I've always been fascinated by my colleague, Dr. Tom Anderson. He had since retired, um, now Professor Emeritus from our department. And um, he had done with his colleague, Toshifumi Abe in, in Japan, um, he had created the Guernica Kids Mural Project, the Peace Mural Project. Um, and it stemmed out of the painting by Pablo Picasso, who, by the way, was a jerk himself and contemptuous of many people. But the painting that he created, Guernica, really captured the horrors and the anger he felt of the destruction by the the Nazis and the allies of the Nazi regime and the destruction of this innocent town, Guernica. 
and, and, and you know, wiping it off the face of this earth. And he, he felt such impotent rage. How can he express himself? And he does this enormous painting that, that, that again, filled with symbology and some of it a little bit more blatant than trailers, but certainly it's in our face. And it tells us the horrors more than anything else of what was really going on, what this was about. And so Anderson took that, and, and Abe took that as a as a template, and said we're we're going to have children who are in situations and environments that are less than ideal, and we're going to capture their societal conflicts and their uh, poverty and the violence around them. And they started in in Tallahassee. Uh, it was it began right around the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima, and so and then they did a counterpart to paintings done by children in Japan, and and there was an exchange of these paintings, and the paintings would go to another area and and then there was a there was a series like that done in Dublin and Kuwait and and all over the world and and you know and there are many artists out there or educators that are taking this even further um, much more so further than than Anderson and Abe and really kind of carrying that flag the Guernica sized flag and really using this mural as an opportunity for children to find a sense of peace and expression and communicate to everyone around them that it wasn't just a small little village in Guernica. It's happening all over the world. Will we see a follow-up, maybe a picture that depicts the destruction of a town in the Ukraine? I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and, you know, and I have, I have a colleague who's an art therapist in the Ukraine. Um, certainly we're, she's fine. Um, but, I, you know, the horrors that are coming out of there, we're going to see a lot of artwork that comes from there. I would love to see a Guernica piece painting coming from the children of the Ukraine afterwards. But I also suspect we're going to be seeing a lot of artwork from Russians who can't express themselves right now, much like Trailer, much like Van Nath, who need to express their own position with their government and the horrors that are going on and, and, and what they really see as the truth in, in hidden symbology. So we're going to see paintings from Russia as well as from the Ukraine. Skeletons playing for the dance. Oh, giving credence to Felix Nussbaum's painting on page 99, might I add. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you may have finished your literary labors in the vineyard, Dave Gusick, but uh, what's ahead? I think even today you've got some things lined up, don't you? Yeah, well, actually, the the um, I think the coincidence is I'll be doing this evening at 9 p.m. a a webinar for the Australian, New Zealand, Asian Creative Arts Therapies Association, 9 p.m. our time, whatever it is there, um, about the book and its genesis. But as I also, I'm lucky enough to um, to head up the um, the Florida State University, Florida Department of Corrections Art Therapy and Prisons Program. And uh, we, we hired over the past several years four art therapists throughout the state to, to provide services in nine separate prisons. So a special shout out to Florida State University for supporting that in my, my, own, um, my own college and department. Um, and so I still write articles and book chapters, but I'm done writing books. Because quite frankly, and, and people think I'm kidding, I really don't like writing. <laughs> 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 kind of like pulling teeth. Oh, it is. Yes. I, I, I'm like this book didn't have to be written. I didn't need it, uh, but it was a it was a compulsion. I was compelled to write it, and I'm I'm glad I did. I think it's it's I'm I'm very pleased with it. Um, I'm pleased with it was published by Oxford University Press, and I think they did a wonderful job with how it ended up. But I think um, a special shout out to my my research assistant Elizabeth Graham, who really helped a great deal tease this apart and help me make sense of it. 
um, I, I put a lot in this and I think I've got nothing left. <laughs> well, I have a strange uh, premonition it's going to go down as the definitive work when it comes to, again, that strange dichotomy between creativity and chaos and, and destruction and beauty and all of these other seemingly unconnected qualities and situations. It, somehow you. you stitch this thing together in a really fascinating way. And again, the, the artwork that is uh, contained therein, which I know was difficult to obtain permission for a lot of this stuff because it has been hidden away for years and years. And because of that murderabilia thing you talked about, boy, we don't want to let this get out because then it becomes celebrated. They're bidding it up online. Right. And, you know, these, I, I, I do want to, I also want to especially thank Florida State University for the creativity grant that they provided to help purchase the copyrights and the images for this book. So thank you to CRC and uh, the, uh, Florida State for providing that grant. Well, and I hope also that uh, the the powers that be here in the uh, uh, state government of Florida will continue to recognize that there can be a contribution to, if not total rehabilitation, certainly mitigation mm -hmm. in the corrections situation when it comes to art therapy. It's not just, oh, kind of nice to have if we can do it, but it could be a, a, a really powerful reclamation tool for a lot of lives. Thank you for saying that. I, I suspect that that will continue. We get a huge amount of support from Florida Department of Corrections. It reminds me of the two points that I ended the book with, and I think I needed to explore those, which seem antithetical to my own being. What, the first point was that art and violence is not always bad, but the last point is that art making is not always good. And you know, make no mistake, art is not banal or impotent or powerless. It's powerful and strong. And in the wrong hands, art can be dangerous. And I think we show that in the book. On the other hand, if we use it right, it can be an extremely powerful tool to help mitigate and contain. Dr. Dave Gussick, thank you for explaining this remarkable piece of literature that you have created. It's been a blast today. Thank you. Thanks, this Dave. is so much fun. Thank you. Perspectives produced by WFSU-FM in Tallahassee. Technical assistance by Taylor Cox and Lyle Rawls on the Interconnects. And I'm Tom Flanagan, along with Kim Kelling, our executive producer. Hey, next week, uh, we are going to be hearing the continuing coverage from NPR of the January 6th committee hearings. So we'll step away. And then coming up, starting the week of the 20th, we are into candidate forums in cooperation with the Tallahassee Democrat and League of Women Voters of Tallahassee. We will catch you then right here on Perspectives. Take care.